Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your grace is indeed sufficient for us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill this time with Bishop Murray. And uh, Lord, that uh, we uh, might uh, see more than just glimpses, but Lord, indeed, you would uh, inhabit uh, this place and that we might behold you in your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, for some reason, uh, being a University of Virginia grad, all of you Vanderbilt grads seem so vivid to me uh, this morning. Um, you may know that UVA is playing Vanderbilt in the College World Series, and uh, it will be uh, a wine and cheese kind of deal, I think. Um, uh, so, uh, but it's, it's exciting. It's exciting for, for those of us um, who go to schools that don't necessarily exceed at athletics. So uh, praise the Lord for that. Well, we have with us uh, Bishop Santosh Murray, his lovely wife, Lynn, who is right there. Hello. Uh, with us this morning, uh, Bishop, we, we invited you here uh, uh, to, to get to know a little bit more about you. And you have a, an incredible story, uh, just your growing up, your conversion, uh, your, your ministry, uh, so I think just out of the gate, tell us, tell us your story. Good morning, everyone. Are you flipping? Yeah. Am I hot? Yes. I am hot. Ooh, yes, I am. Good morning, everyone. It's always a pleasure to come to the Advent. We are neighbors. Not only are we neighbors, we are colleagues, and we are a team working in the Diocese of Alabama. And, and I want to say, first of all, I want to congratulate whoever thought it fit and proper to call Dean Pearson as your dean. So We normally have a tip jar up here, so that's, that's, that's helpful. Couldn't have made a better choice. And I, 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 I want to begin by also... Um, Thanking Dean Pearson for referencing Miriam Abraham this morning in, um, in his sermon because I think that is a wonderful story of true Christian evangelism and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. If ever there is a modern saint, a modern saint, um, I said at our council meeting when this thing came up and I said, you know, in the ancient days of the early church, we would have, if ever... She were put to death, and I hope she isn't, because she is indeed deserving of, of living. But if ever she were, God forbid, um, had she been in another time, she would be immediately proclaimed a saint. If you follow the many saints we have in our church, in our church over the centuries, so um, I want you to remember Miriam in, in your prayers. I pray for her every day because I think she is a true icon of what it means to be a Christian and if ever you, you want to see the, the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed this morning in the Eucharist lived out in true flesh, think about Miriam Abraham. If you read the gospel, think about Miriam as, as Dean Pearson referenced her and you see how the gospel today comes alive in her witness. Fascinating. We still have people who will die for Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not a fallacy anymore. Um, my wife Lynn and I, we are from British Guyana, one of the only British colony in South America. If you remember the days of colonialism, um, but now it's independent since 1966. 
It's a predominantly Hindu and Muslim country with a lot of Christians. Uh, I mean, I would say Christianity would have been a significant part of the population uh, because, of course, Christianity came from the, the United Society for the Proclamation of the Gospel, the missionary outfit from, from the Church of England that spread the gospel in the third world, uh, as you would recall. And that, of course, um, our four parents came from India um, during the time after the emancipation of slavery in 1860 odd, whenever that happened. And they came, they were brought by the British to work in the sugarcane plantation um, when, uh, during that period. And they were brought in as indentured laborers with the option of returning back home after four years or being given a piece of a plot of land and settling down in a new colony. And as some did, as our four parents did, and they settled down, but they kept their faith, uh, which was Hinduism and, and to a lesser extent, um, Islam or Muslim. Um, of course, uh, the, the, the blacks who were slaves, they were predominantly Christians. So um, Christianity was more or less um, concentrated among the slave community and of course the, the Europeans uh, who came also from, from Europe to be, be part of the, 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 the um, colonial system there. And so what you discover that um, every young Indian person, most of them were all <coughs> Hindu or Muslim depend, depending uh, who your parents were. So I, I was born a Hindu and my parents were very faithful, I believe, in observing their faith and, and like any Hindu family, whenever that was done, the children were all involved in the profession of that faith. My wife, on the other hand, was always a Christian. Um, her parents were far wiser than mine in the early <laughs> stages. And so they were Catholics, Roman Catholics, and then it evolved from that. Um, but I was, I was born and I grew up um, uh, and I attended to, 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 their, to the work uh, of, to, I mean, Hindus have a way of every year, they, they are pretty religious people, as you would, if you follow India a lot, you will realize that they are pretty religious people, even though they believe in a, a, a polytheistic God, everybody happens to be a God or goddess, uh, but nevertheless they are very religious. And so we, we did that, um, but I think the great break came for me when I was about uh, 12 years old. Um, a friend of mine who was uh, a, a Christian, a lay reader in the small Anglican church in the village, uh, which was connected to the primary school, New Market Primary School, St. Agnes School. Um, he was a Christian, a lay reader in the church, and he and I, he was much older than I was, and uh, the young, young man growing up at about 12, 10 to 12, I began, got involved in rice planting, uh, where my parents had no one to take care of their rice fields, and so the young man, I, I decided I was going to do it, and I didn't know much about rice planting, but I, what I knew about it then, it was hard work. Oh my gosh, it was hard work. It was, you were walking in deep mud, in, almost down to your waist, or, or at least surely to your knee, and 
and you're pulling and with beads and carrying all kind of heavy bag with, with seedlings on your back and you're walking for miles in this um, mud-filled land, but it was tough work. But he taught me how to plant it. He taught me the, the skills of the as an, elder, an older person than myself to plant rice. And so he was a Christian and then he invited me, became very close friend. His name, his name was Ronald. And um, he was an Indian like myself. He's Indian, but he became a Christian because his uncle was the Archdeacon of Guyana. And by that association. Um, and so I, he invited me one day um, at about age 12, he said to me, why don't you come follow me to my church? And being a loyal friend to a very good friend, I said, sure. So I, I went to his church and just sat down, stand, uh, stood, sit, <laughs> breathe, <laughs> you know, while the service went on, did all the ceremonial stuff, very obedient to everything and so on. And, and then uh, I think, I think uh, the, the bishop was coming for confirmation and uh, we had no parish priests. We had a, 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 we had, uh, our parish priest had about eight churches, and so he only came once a month. The rest of the weeks were done by a deacon. Uh, we call it permanent deacon, or we call it vocational here. And so the deacon, he was a schoolmaster at one of the primary schools or elementary schools, as you call it here. We call it in the U.S. Um, he was the deacon, and he then. Um, encouraged me to be baptized because the bishop was coming for confirmation and they needed to make up some numbers in terms of confirmation. <laughs> and so I, I gladly obliged not knowing what I was doing, but again being obedient. Uh, and so I got baptized and soon got confirmation. Never went to a confirmation class, never went to Sunday school, never um, knew there was a Bible, but never read it. Um, <clears throat> um, didn't have prayer books. So it was interesting, so uh, um, uh, I became a Christian, and then in that way, you know, it it took, it worked. It worked. It worked. It worked. And so uh, from from there, uh, what was your your parents' response as your faith began to grow, and uh, you you set out and you said, uh, I'm I'm a follower and believer in the Lord Jesus. Well, I tell you what, you know, when God calls a stranger to faith in a different scenario, which this was. God, as wise as God is, he made me fall in love with a Christian girl, probably the only beautiful Christian girl in the community. <laughs> and that's my wife. And so, and so I think I got hooked to the church because my wife was the, the most beautiful Christian girl in the village. She was a school teacher at the school I taught as well. So I think a lot has to be to go a lot of credit gotta go to her for for being there for God. But my parents, obviously the young men in my village, they would go off to my brother was at the university trying to do a, a science because he's a pretty brilliant. I was dull. I was the dumbest in the family. But that's alright. Um, dumb people do get by as well. Um, and so he, he, he went, he, my parents could afford to send him off to the University of Guyana. I couldn't go because I, they couldn't afford to send two of us. So I spent my time teaching at the primary school. And when I, when I 
became Catholic Church, um, and I went to seminary, they were not too keen on sharing with people that their son was a, going to be a priest. Because their neighbors, their children, would be an engineer, brother brother was a scientist, uh, another one going to be a teacher, and they thought, what priest? In a community of Hindu-Muslim? Priest? What is that? You know, and then the priesthood in Ghana is not as opulent as in the States. It's, it's very poor and the, 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 you could hardly make a living. Uh, uh, the salary of a priest would be about one U.S. dollar, uh, I would say about a hundred U.S. dollar a month. Uh, Two hundred Guyana dollar makes one U.S. dollar, so you do the math. Um, so it was not an attractive profession, so they did not see their son doing anything substantially laudable by the standard of the local community. It was not one of those preferred career choice. But I loved it. I felt God had called me to it. And yes, they did not boast about me, but that was their choice. My choice was to serve the Lord. And so you served in uh, Guyana, and you and Lynn were married during seminary, after seminary? When were you all married? Well, I this, is, this might be a tough question if you Yeah, I, I, this, this, in the Hindu culture, at least in Guyana, generally the parents will find the girl is a match wedding, like eHarmony.com, right? <laughs> you know, except that the, the algorithm happens between the parents and not the computer. All right. So um, uh, uh, my wife uh, was poor. Uh, her mother had died very young. She, she was brought back on. She was living in the community. She has her own beautiful story. We call her one day and let her tell you her story, how she suffered and how she was brought up. So, now, the thing about it was that, um, that I think that God was was moving in our life, really, in a strange way, really, in all these, these, these circumstances. And so, what was the question again? So, when did you marry your wife? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about it, my mother didn't want me to marry her because she was, not, she was poor, she was dark-skinned. Interesting thing with, with East Indians in my culture is that they're all dark-skinned, but they still want their children to be white-skinned. I don't know how that would work out, <laughs> but that was a mystery I couldn't figure. And so she was, you know, she was not a preferred choice. They went to find some young lady to, to marry me, a Hindu girl, and, and then they discovered that I'm in love with this lady. And so what happened, before I went to seminary, in order to let Lynn know that I love her, I, I, I loped with her. We, we, we <laughs> boy. We got married without my parents' knowledge in 1977, two years after they did the wedding. So we had married twice. Strange things happen when you're a Christian. You so your, your parents came around eventually? Well, reluctantly, Welcome yes. Back. Reluctantly. Did they ever know that you eloped? Well, when it came for the real wedding, or the, or the, the, the religious part, then they found out. Mm. They were kind of suspicious, <laughs> but that's suspicious. She had not had a child before then, had she? When did y'all have your children? Oh, we got our children. We were married in 19... Two sons? 
77. We are first child was born in 1981. Okay. But 82, sorry, when I came, a year after I came out of seminary. Uh, one daughter. One daughter and one son. One son, Ingram, who is 31, and then we had a second child, Alita, who died um, soon after she was born. She lived a couple of days, mm. and then Amanda came in um, in 1986. So three children, two alive. Three children. And uh, you went uh, from Guyana, and then you served in the Bahamas. Yeah, um, life in Guyana was very tough because we had our politicians were corrupt, and they had gone practicing the corrupt practices of communism. I'm sorry, I failed to see the difference that you're making between Guyana and the United States. What's, what's your point? I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> you see that. Uh, they were com- they gone communism and uh, got corrupted, and Guyana had become a very tough country. You could hardly live, um, and so... We eventually got a job in the Bahamas in 1989. We left. My wife got a job as a school teacher. I got a job as a, as a clergy in one of the parishes. Um, uh, I spent a year in Nassau, and then I went on to Inagua in the Bahamas. And I think Inagua, um, I always, whenever I write about this, I always refer reference Inagua as my island of Patmos, where I discovered Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Mm. Ten years after ordination, I met Jesus face to face. Because um, my, my previous to that, I felt that I was using the church because I'd gone to seminary in as much as I knew I'd, I'd know Jesus, but, but morally like I felt I was using Jesus. There was no conviction, no epiphany, no inner, uh, no inner conviction that this is my Lord and Savior. But in, in, in 19, I think it was 1990, 1991, uh, I decided that my, there was a vacuum in my life. And believe me, I was working very hard. God was multiplying God's work um, using me. And, but yet there was a vacuum in my life. I, something was happening in my life that I was not comfortable with. And I wondered if I was using the church and being a mock, a fraud. And so I decided with this heaviness in my heart, I wanted Jesus, I wanted to discover Jesus. I wanted Jesus to tell me whether or not uh, I'm, I'm a fraud or, I, or I'm re- for real. And so for three weeks I fasted and prayed very early in the morning. I went to the church and I, nobody knew, my wife didn't even know what was happening in my life. And then on the third week, um, very dark the church because I went very early without anybody knowing I wanted quietness. I heard the voice of God whispering through the church as I knelt in prayer, Son, I am with you. Do what you're doing. I'm always with you. And then Sunday morning when I went into the church and I opened the door because I was always the first, there was a dove in the church. And then uh, as I stood chatting with some of the two ladies, Miss Cartwright and Miss Ingram, when they came, they would come early. The dog swooped down on me and just went back. The second week, and during the week, the dog was never there. Second week, opened the door, the dog was there again. Doing the same thing. I was chatting with Miss Cartwright. Third week, opened the door, went as a general view, go. Spent an hour in prayer because I always believe I needed to be, I needed to pray and engage the Holy Spirit before I go to the altar because I am doing one of the most powerful Christian tasks and that is to bring Jesus to God's people. So I needed to be 
prepared for that. I did my prayer of, of, of prayer. The two uh, elderly ladies came. We were standing talking and the dog flew down and stood on my head. Just rested in my head. And then I lift up my hand and took the dog in my hand and let it up out of the door. And the dog was never seen in church again. And I knew then that I was not cheating the church, that I belonged. That Jesus brought me from another faith in a circuitous manner over 12 years of wandering and serving. This one day when I decided I needed to know if you are truly my Lord and Savior, I needed to know that you, I belong. God answered my prayers. I didn't ask for the descent of the dove. I just wanted a confirmation. It would have been good enough to hear that voice and move on. But God wanted to make it more profound. And that's why I in the Pathos, because from then on, Life has never been the same for me in terms of what God has done with my life. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about, you've, you've sort of referenced it, that, that uh, ministry is relatively easy in the United States, mm-hmm. but uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about ministering in the context uh, with limited resources, uh, but also, uh, which actually might be apropos to what we're talking, uh, your, your story and what we deal with in America, um, ministering to people in a cross-cultural context that is, um, uh, you know, it, we, don't, we don't live in Christendom anymore, and you've ministered in contexts where, uh, where you can't take the gospel for granted, that people would know it, that you really have to be clear uh, and, and, and winsome and, and loving in the way that you approach mission. So tell us about resources and how to do ministry and some of what was going on in the Bahamas and, uh, and ministering in a cross-cultural context. One of my favorite passages in scripture is Jeremiah 29.5 and that is plant garden, marry wives, have children in the land, blah blah blah, in the land of your exile. Because when you work for the welfare of the, the city you live in, you benefit from that as well. And so I've seen my life with what is called cultural humility. What that means is that when I go to a place I don't dictate the pace. I let the culture dictate what I do. So even though I have a lot of stuff that I have that I can reference or access, I let the culture dictate how I adopt and serve. So when I go to places, rarely there are any, uh, there is any um, resources. Simply because communities are poor, they have, they, they are struggling. They just survival is the first order of life, and so. What I would do is that in many countries, in many parishes, the parish priest has to be the leader. The parish priest has to gather, learn how to gather people together, and the parish priest has to learn how to lead in scarcity, how to create abundance in scarcity. And so what happens is that you have to, one, encourage people by giving them hope, share the love of Jesus Christ, be walk with them in, on their turf. You have to be humble, you have to live at their level, and you have to show that what they're going through, you're also experiencing. You have to be one of the people. I rode a bicycle for, the first time I, I drove a car really was when I came <laughs> to the Bahamas. Because 
you know, that, that more affluent country. Most of my ministry, 10 years plus, was riding a bicycle. And so what I, I did is that I found that I will do a lot of the work during the week. And, and, and the, the members, we gather them on weekends or in afternoon. And, and what we will do, whatever little was done, we gather together. So what we did, we have what we call self-help. So to do ministry, we'll all have a fair, we all will be there trying to raise money. The little money we have, we might target it towards either restoring the church or, or towards developing um, Sunday school ministry. And also what happens is that you don't plan too far ahead. You may have a master plan, but you have to execute that master plan incrementally based on the context and the content. And so, while you may have a big plan, you have to do it. So, we never planned too large. We did whatever little we planned, we, we did it well. So that fruit was born out of that plan. And we minimized, the, the, um, we minimized significantly wastage in ministry. We minimized it by being very judicious and very frugal and very exact. So we minimize the cost of failure in ministry because you had much to work with, therefore you work with the lift you have and you produce significantly with the lift you have. I started to build a 5,600 square footage community center in Inagua with 3,000 US dollars. And it, it became a, 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 a hurricane shelter, uh, and all this, it's about, it, it, and it cost 150,000 US dollars, built stronger than many clapboard buildings we built and dressed them up around here with facade that looks nice, but the in integrity of the building is so compromised. We built, forget if you're, that's the truth. Watch when the tornado comes. Everything flattened on the ground. Um, but in the Bahamas, hurricanes were passing and nothing happening, right? Because we build with blocks, we build with steel, we build with hurricane strap. And we build that 5,600 square footage building for 150,000 US dollars, including buying all of our material from the US and having to ship it. You know why? We build frugally, we build with strength, we build with integrity, but we did not rush. We took two years to build it because we raised money and we built. We raised and built. And we did not owe a debt at the end of that day. That building in the US would cost how many dollars? How much dollars? 5,000 square foot acre. Or 3 million? 2 million? And, and everything is concrete poured with steel. And hurricanes have passed through the, on that building every year. And thank God, it's still standing up and people's lives are being saved. And that's how we do ministry. We're very deliberate, we're very frugal, but we, we, we minimize the cost of failure. And we draw people in. We, hmm. we get that when we do ministry, we ensure that we include the entire community, whether they are Christians, or Baptists, Episcopalians, Methodists, whether they are in Guyana, Hindus or Muslims, 
we involve them because um, we found, we discovered that the more you collaborate with the wider community, the better are your chances for, for impacting the gospel because in those places, the gospel is more seen than read. The gospel manifests through flesh rather than through the theoretical mm -hmm. piece. That, that, that's, how, that's how you do things in those places. Mm -hmm. That we must be a witness to Jesus Christ by the fruit we bear rather than by the, 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 the amount of words we say. Mm -hmm. I, hope I, didn't, I hope I answered it. Yeah. Uh, and when you, you went from there to Jacksonville, Florida, what was that transition like? Well, it was wonderful. I think I, we wanted a change. I wanted a change because in the Bahamas, they were, I'm a, I was a, we were foreigners, and Bahamians are wonderful people, but when you come to visit, it's different than when you come to live. Um, you're reminded every day that you're a foreigner. Uh, but they are great people, and, and many they were birthing a lot of clergy, and they were, there weren't many parishes opening up for the clergy, and so I feel it was time for us to move on. I got a call to Jacksonville, Florida, to a, a small African-American church with about 60 or less members on a Sunday morning. And imagine me coming from a thousand-member church as rector with an associate and a staff to a small African-American church with 60 people on a Sunday morning. I, I was going to be bored, you know. But then they wanted the church to grow. And by that experience, and, and I believe by the by the Holy Spirit living in me and manifesting. The church grew from 60 A.S. on a Sunday morning in a year to 120 on a Sunday morning. And I was only God could do that. So in 2004, um, I went there in 2003 of September. In 2004, um, in 2003 of September, I also was doing a course in England at the University of Wales, a master in canon law, the University of Wales. I, I, I wanted to know a little bit more about this church, because I had come from another faith, and I needed to know as much as I could about this church I'm living into. So, um, in, in, about, um, in 2004, the church had grown. It had become pretty much, you look down the, the congregation, young families, youth group, all of the Quite a number of ministries were, were in place now when there weren't any. And so it was a wonderful sight to see on a Sunday morning 120 folks from a church that had about an aging population. I felt good about it. But I suppose that was God's, um, God's, God's work and not mine. But it so happened that in 2004, I was in this class, a friend of mine from Seychelles, um, um, nudged me. He was the Chancellor of the Diocese and we were sitting together while the lecturer was doing a lecture. And I said, uh, what's it Bernard? He said, I need your CV. I said, what do you want it for? I want to put your name up as Bishop of my Diocese. I said, why? He said, because I, something hit me here pointing to his heart to ask me for it. So I did it. 2004, September. Um, but the, the, the rapidity of what was happening in Jacksonville, Florida, in terms of the, 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 the build-up of the church and the enthusiasm. Actually, the mystery about all of this in Jacksonville, uh, Florida, the, the, the senior warden and another gentleman was coming through, from the, through the parking lot and looked at me as I was coming under the breezeway and said, you 
Someday somebody's going to call you away to be their bishop and we will lose you. I said, you've got to be crazy. <laughs> I'll tell you why. One, I'm East Indian. I just come to this church and the Episcopal Church is a black and white church and East Indian thing of me made bishop. <laughs> Two, in Guyana, it's a black church, the Anglican church, and they'll make, and there's a tension between the East Indian and the Afro-Guyanese. They will, a guy, an East Indian will never be made Bishop of Guyana. Two, the Bahamas, my other country, don't think about it. You're a foreigner, you're never going to be made a Bishop. So how am I going to be made a Bishop? I'm not praying for something that I'm going to, tempting my God for. I'm not going to, I'm so happy God has made it. May he's called me to be a priest. And I, my prayer every day, um, Theo, that's his name, Theo and, um, uh, and James. Theo and James, my, every day my prayer and my need, Lord, make me the best priest you could ever, ever want. You have brought me from a different faith. Only you could have done this. You stepped into my life. You needn't to do it. You pulled me out of a community of rarely any Christians. How this happened only could be your blessing. I am so thankful that you called me, you went looking for me in that rural, God-forsaken community. Lord, I just want to be the best priest you could ever have. Nothing else I'm going to ask you for. I told him that. So, no. And then you were elected the Bishop of the Seychelles. <laughs> Crazy enough. That must be, must, that must have been a terrible gig. Yeah, oh. terrible gig. So, yeah, that's when he called me. So, Seychelles, where is Seychelles? <laughs> is there a country named Seychelles? So, yes, my country. So, I came and talked to my wife. I said, send the CV. See what the Lord has for us. <laughs> and then, I got called for the interview. Flew into the Seychelles. On a, a, a leave Jackson on Friday. Get into, uh, get into England on, on Saturday morning. No, on Friday. Flew out of, of London on, on Friday night, got into Seychelles Saturday, went for the interview over lunch, flew back, preached at the cathedral at 5 o'clock, flew back out on Sunday morning back to the States, and people didn't know that I'd gone, because I didn't tell anybody. It was a secret. And then the miracle about that, I, I tell you why I, 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 in my heart and soul, I'm so devoted to this thing. I believe I'm not being arrogant, I'm being humble, and, and you'll hear why I say that if, if anyone were to make me a bishop, God would have to make me a bishop, not anybody. God would have to say, I want you to be a bishop, I'm calling you to this. And one, because I didn't go seeking it, I didn't want it, I knew I wasn't, going, I wasn't cut out to be it. Um, but what happened is that when I went to the interview, the United Society for the Proclamation of the Gospel, USPG, sent down the resume of the desk officer responsible for giving funds to Seychelles and Africa. And he visited Seychelles many times, and he'll carry a check. Right? Money. And where in the world doesn't money buy stuff, you know? Even loyalty. Right? Uh, and so, his name was sent down, and there was a a guy from um, from the, from diocese working in Mauritius. His name was Senator. So they got their list together, and and so on February the 19th of February 2005 was the election. It was the 18th here and 19th over there because there's eight hours difference. 
I knew I wasn't going to be elected. And for the, from October when I went for the interview to February, I prayed, he prayed, Lord, please not let me get elected. <laughs> I have two children in university in Canada. I have a mortgage to pay. My wife alone is working. Lord, it's going to be too much. You know I love you. You know I've committed my life to you, Lord. I know I've never asked you for anything, um, <laughs> any money or anything, Lord. I'm so happy you called me to be a Christian. I don't know what my life will be. But, Lord, please, don't let me get elected. The other guys are good enough, Lord. However, on the night of the election, which would have been 12 o'clock at our time, 12 o'clock midnight, it would have been 10 o'clock their time the next day when they were going to the session. I, I, I have an oratory in my home in Jacksonville, an altar that I do my meditation. Uh, and the reason is that Lynn and I never thought we'd ever owned a home. And our prayer was, Lord, if you give us a, a house, we are going to build you an altar in that house that you will remain the Lord of this house. And when God blessed us with the house, I built an altar, and that's where we do our meditation. Uh, crazy people, aren't we? <laughs> but we keep our promises to God. Um, and so I, I went there at, at, at 12 o'clock in the night, and I was praying and praying and praying uh, alone, and asking, Lord, don't let me get elected, please. But nevertheless, Lord, not my will be done. Your will be done. I've always been loyal to you. And so at tr at three, after three hours of prayer, I said, they got to be finished now. So I got up from my prayer, drank a glass of milk, went to bed at 3 o'clock, at 3.15. At 3.30, they called me to say, we have just elected you our bishop. Would you accept the call? I was surprised because here was this guy from South Africa who was in England and was giving them money. I thought he was going to be elected. That's done deal. But then, uh, but, and so I said, well, God won again. I, I, I'm afraid I have to Jesus won again, as he always does in my life. And so I, I went to the Seychelles, and the miracle about that is this. And he confessed to me, the guy, the chancellor who took my name and sent it to, to put it, my name in, he took me to dinner after the consecration when I went there to kind of settle down. He said, I got something to confess to you. He said, I did not vote for you. I voted for the other guy. <laughs> Can you imagine that? But God only wanted him to be the, the, the instrument by which my name will go into the process. And God did the rest of the thing. And when I heard the, the talk about the election, they said that they were a stalemate. And, 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 and they went and prayed. And they prayed and they felt the Holy Spirit and when they, when they voted again, it came out overwhelmingly that the Spirit was calling me. And my friend didn't vote for me none of the three times. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have friends like that too. Um, well, I, I hope, I mean, this is, just, uh, I, this is, we only get a sip uh, yeah. When, yeah. When, when folks come, but uh, just, I think that we have a wonderful resource in you uh, because you have ministered in a context that I think America has become uh, in, in some ways, and so uh, it's, it's good to have you next door to help us uh, navigate uh, the, the cultural waters, and uh, so pleased you're here. Questions? Comments?
in the remaining minutes? walk those eight miles or 32 miles going to my rice fields every Saturday uh, Saturday, I always felt that there was a connection between God and me, you know. And because I was uh, pretty much faithful to, to my parents' religion, I knew the concept of a God. I knew there was a concept of a God. I knew that there's a God who created the world, you know, God who, who loves us and those kind of things. The concept of God was there in me. The manifestation of the God was where the difference was. Whereas in Hinduism, you have to deal with a, a lot of goddesses. In Christianity, only Jesus is Lord and Savior. So the concept of God is there, but how it plays out in my life, in a Christian way, is where the difference is. So it was very influential. It introduced me to the concept of God. You're talking about Ronald, the Ronald. school, yeah. yeah. Well, well, what he did, I don't think he was as explicit as that, but he was enthusiasm about his church. He was a lay reader, he would go and clean up and tidy up, he'd read the lesson. There was a sense of enthusiasm about his faith that was contagious. And I kind of wanted to be part of that. You know, so a lot of times, time, the gospel is preached not only by the words of Jesus Christ being told to people, but by the way people respond to the, the, the word of Jesus that, that lives in them. You know, and I think he manifested that peace. Well, I'm waiting for the final shoe to drop. My wife and I have been gone a lot. So we're wondering, how is it that you got from the Seychelles to Birmingham, Alabama? All right, quickly. When I came back from the Seychelles, actually I was given a laundry list of stuff to do. The diocese had broken down to pieces. All its, it, it, it had lost its mooring, and I think they wanted they specifically were going outside to look for somebody to bring in because they knew that nobody they had would bring a vision to the place. So I went there, got a laundry list. They owe about 3 million rupees. All the buildings are falling down. They needed a woman's ordination to the priesthood. They needed a new diocese in office. They, they owed quite a bit of money on the new cathedral they had built. And the morale of the diocese had di di diminished. There was a, a poor relationship with the government because one of the clergy was the leader of the opposition party in the country. So think about that, right? And all of these things. So I set about restoring all of this in the diocese worked hard to bring them back. So I restored it back. I, by the time I left, there were over 6 million rupees in the bank and an investment that I paid all the 3 million out. I had ordained the first one priest in the province because I had to go lobby for it. I had restored most of the buildings with the help of the people. I, I, I had restored the voice of the church within the, the government. The government began to trust the Anglican church again. And the government, I was, between the Roman Catholic bishop and myself, I had more clout in terms of what I say in the country. I, what I did 
I helped to direct the national conversation in that country. If I had a problem and I, something's going wrong, I'll pick the phone and call the president and say, listen, this is what's happening. Or I'll make an appointment and go and see him. I don't like this, Mr. President. You need to do something about it. I have to. And so the church had regained its voice in the community. It was looking great again. People were happy. There was a new life in the diocese. And then I realized, you know, something, it was time for me to come home. God has, have, has used me to restore this place. And I, I said to myself, I need to go back to my family. And so I said to them, I, my job is done here. What you've asked me to do, I've completed. I need to go back to my family now. And so I came back home, told them to go uh, 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 um, elect my successor. And at age 50 years old, I had no kingdom. I had no diocese. I was, I was jobless because I chose to sacrifice my job in the interest of the, of the diocese. And I said to them, what you need now is long-term episcopate because the diocese has been fixed. You're going to have 1.5 million rupees coming every year as dividends because we had paid out on an, on an investment building that we, they had built. And in my time, we paid it out, which means that $1.5 million will come into the kitty without them even sniffing a dividend. So they got money for life. The diocese was stable. It became the best diocese in the province in those four years. So I came back home, and for nine months, I had nothing to do. And I, and I kicked a lot of rock with Jesus. He and I fought every day. You, what am I going to do? Nothing to do. And then East Carolina, the Bishop of East Carolina, I met him in Spain at the Bishop Conference. He invited me to be his assisting bishop. And then the, the problem is when I came to the Episcopal Church, I didn't think the Episcopal Church trusted me. I'll tell you why. Because during my time in the Seychelles, the Archbishop of Canterbury appointed me to be one of the drafters of the Anglican Communion Covenant. Have you heard about the Anglican Communion Covenant? I was one of the drafters of that. And because of that, the Episcopal Church, they didn't like it. I, all those who were in that became suspicious as, as anti-Episcopal Church. And so when I came back to my church, my church didn't trust me. I, and then the Archbishop put me after that to be one of his pastoral visitors, which meant that with the current Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby and I, Warnick, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, the Bishop of Harare, now, the, the, the Archbishop, the former Archbishop of, of, of Australia Primate, Peter Carnali, we were all part of this eight-person pastoral visitors group that went to different dioceses in trouble and helped to do mediation on behalf of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so you were at this level in Anglican Communion and the church thing. So, so there was a little problem. But then Dan Daniels, the Bishop of East Carolina, a friend, became a friend. He brought me to the House of Bishop. And he promised me three years, and then after three years, in October of 12, it was going to be up, and Key was looking for an assistant, and I said to Key, could you help a poor brother out? <laughs> and Key said, well, I'll try, I can't promise, uh, and, and I think God spoke to Key's heart, and here I am. Well, let me, uh, let me pray for the bishop, and... Yeah. Uh, Y'all go have brunch or go worship. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ministry of Bishop and Lynn. We pray that you would continue to sustain them 
uh, that you would hold them fast in, in your arms, guide them, strengthen them, uh, give them a clarity of thought and a precision in their language, uh, so that as you are lifted up, you might draw all men and women unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you very much for your time. I have to